I'm not opening this with a bad rendition of that theme song because I'm closing this with a bad rendition of that theme song. <laughs> just am... kidding. Just kidding. I am opening it with it because this is soon to be a major motion podcast. We're here. With your favorite hosts, Cody Beck. Billy Beck. We are talking about a book, the movie that it spawned. Hmm, the movie that it immediately spawned. Uh, we are talking about this week, Jurassic Park. The classic. The OG. This is the first time I've seen it, actually. Shut up. So how have you been since we last recorded? <laughs> uh, nothing major has happened. No car accidents, no damages, may have been exposed to COVID again, but that's fine. That's just life. Fuck, I've recorded podcasts with COVID before. <laughs> that's nothing these days. <laughs> we are we are not making light of COVID. We are, it's gallows humor, I believe is the term, because we've been left to fend for ourselves in a pandemic by the No, no, the pandemic's, the pandemic's over now, according to uh, certain governmental ent- entities that never gave a shit about us in the first place. Meanwhile, we have, like, friends currently with COVID. Hey. Great. Well, speaking of billionaires that don't give a fuck about you. <laughs> How was my week? <laughs> <laughs> How was your week? Oh. Also, similarly, nothing going on. Uh, started watching the Tour de France. Because it's uh, something I've been doing since I was a kid. And I fucking love it. And today was a really good stage. And I'm still kind of buzzing about it. Getting up at three in the morning every day sucks, and I do sleep through the first few hours of each stage, but I don't give a shit, because I'm having fun. Nerd. So that's how I've been going. So yeah, uh, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. Yeah. The uh, One of Spielberg's greatest. I think it's safe to say that. Oh, absolutely. Um, you yeah. will not find any disagreement. Pretty sure it's his most profitable. Also, one of Michael Crichton's fav- uh, most famous. Yeah. It's definitely the one I recognize the most from his uh, his works. It revitalized his career to an extent because yeah. the movie did so well. Um, when did you first, because I believe you saw Jurassic Park before I did. So I did, actually. I saw it uh, in theaters. My, my mom took me to see it. Although I'm not totally sure whether it was Jurassic Park or The Lost World. Which is the one where the guy gets bitten in half? Like, tussled between two dinosaurs. Is that the first one or the second one? That's not the first one. Okay. So, the story in my family goes... (laughs) They took me to see the movie when I was, like, three or four. Knowing when you were born and when this movie came out, that would have been The Lost World. Yeah. It was not this movie. I always thought you saw this movie in theaters as an 18-month-old. I mean, who no, knows? I even, may have. Not even. <laughs> I may have. This was a summer movie. You would have been 12 months old. Um, but the story with The Lost World and my introduction to, like, I remember this happening, was I would have been about three or four, and apparently my mom and dad took me to this movie along with my older siblings and my siblings were worried that I was going to be scared. And apparently during the scene where the guy's in the bathroom and gets uh, torn apart by two T-Rexes, I started jumping up and down in my seat yelling, mommy, they bit him in half. And the entire theater laughed at me. Not the only time an entire theater's laughed at you. Let's be real. (laughs) They were supposed to that time though. Fair. Um, So what's your introduction to this movie? So, I grew up in a very evangelical household. Did you? This is brand new information. 
I was not allowed to watch a lot of TV. I was not allowed to see a lot of movies. Most music was out. Books were fine, though. If you think this story ends with me reading a book about dinosaurs, it does not. <laughs> because dinosaurs weren't real in my household. I mean, no, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. Dinosaurs were real in my household, but they weren't 65 million years ago. They died in the flood because, quote, some translations of the Bible include giant lizards in their description of animals that died in the flood of Noah. End quote. That is something my father told me at a young age. Oh, that causes me physical pain. Oh, shut the fuck up, Siri. Um, um, I so, mean, you <laughs> did read a book with, liz- with, with dinosaurs in it, though, but you probably were a little bit older. What, what, Animorphs? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Animorphs will probably come up later in this, because that... I was, not, I was never a dinosaur kid. But Jurassic Park was cool as fuck. And I still kind of remember uh, in 1995 when it first aired on TV, because it was an event. Like, everyone watched it. I was reading about it today, and they got something like 35% market share. I think it was ABC that aired it. And I want to say that Thanksgiving or the Thanksgiving after, it was a big, like, thing on TV. Like, oh, Thanksgiving night after dinner, watch Jurassic Park. Or after football, watch Jurassic Park. Why? weird... (laughs) I don't know why. But I was excited to watch it because I'd never seen it. And kids at school had seen it and they were talking about it. And I needed to understand. And I wasn't allowed to watch it the first time because, quote, according to my parents, I was too tired and needed to go to bed, which as an adult, I understand, means no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I saw it until middle school when a teacher, I assume with a hangover, went, all right, you go on Christmas break tomorrow. We're watching the beginning of Jurassic Park. Fuck it. And then eventually I, I got to see the whole thing in one sitting. But I didn't see the first one in full until after I had seen the third one. Weird. At all places, at my church. Oh. They showed the third one as part of a like dinner and a movie thing for the youth group. But why? Fuck if I know. Lizard Jesus. I don't know. Yeah, so I saw the third one first. Saw Lost World after that. (laughs) And then eventually came around and actually sat down and watched the entirety of Jurassic Park. You know, that actually makes sense, because, like, I saw them in order in theory, but I remember the third one the most, because I would have been, what, like, eight when it came out? You would have been ten, I think. I want to say the third world was... Third World? The third one. <laughs> it was like 02, 03-ish? That makes sense, because I probably... We probably went to see it, my mom and I. Yeah. So I remember that one. Like, I remember that one distinctly. Also, because I don't have daddy issues, it's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then... I don't really remember the second one. Beyond, like, the memory I have of being a small child and seeing the man ripped in half. Um, I remember the second one more than the third... Because it was like right after I saw the third, my my aunt who lived next door because my family is a monster, um, had an incredible movie collection. And when you're not allowed to watch movies, and then you go over to her house, and there's just uh, two layers deep wall of VHS tapes, 
you're intrigued. It's like going to Blockbuster every time you go over there. And I went over there shortly after seeing the third one and saw The Lost World and went, might as well. Asked to borrow it, watch it, and it was like a special edition that had like documentary stuff before and after. Ooh. So like I remember like watching it alone in my parents' bedroom while they were watching shit downstairs. Hey. Um, just like mesmerized by how cool it was. The bit with the bus coming off the cliff. Yeah. Killer scene, and then like watching a, a thing about how they did the CGI of the glass cracking. Like that was on that same VHS tape. And it's one of those like distinct childhood memories of falling in love with movies was The Lost World. But we're not talking about The Lost World today. We're talking about the OG. The OG. We're talking about... The Mother Lizard. Jurassic Park. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents... You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure... Look out! can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. Let's get into it. So we're gonna so, s- switch it up a little bit and we're figuring more people are gonna be familiar with the movie. I'm just, it's an assumption. This movie has been out for 30 years now. Um... <laughs> I'm assuming you've seen Jurassic Park. If you haven't, it's on fucking Peacock, probably for free. Um, it's probably on TV every other day on USA. Buy it. Just buy it on Just, TV. It's a good movie. Go fucking watch it if you haven't seen it. Do I really need to do the plot? It's fucking Jurassic Park. All right. So, I want to say Richard Hammond, and I know that's not it. <laughs> well, he is a dick. So, Richard Hammond crashes his car into Jurassic Park. So, John Hammond... He's making his dinosaur zoo amusement park thingy. He's doing his Disney's Animal Kingdom. But a decade before, a worker gets killed by a velociraptor. He's facing a $20 million lawsuit. The insurance company and his lawyers need basically third-party approval in order to open the park to the public. So he brings in a paleontologist known as Alan Grant... His partner in crime, who's a... Paleobotanist. Paleobotanist. I couldn't remember the word paleo. It's in front of me. <laughs> couldn't remember it. At least a paleobotanist. Um, and then the lawyer, Gennaro, brings in a chaos theorist, Ian Malcolm. Hammond tells them how the park works, shows them the Mr. DNA movie, which is all the exposition as to how they figured out how to clone dinosaurs. I assume that's half the book. Um, they see a raptor get born in the lab... And Baby it, raptor. They see the adult raptors get fed an entire cow, except they don't see it, they more hear it. And they go enjoy a nice dinner in which all of the guests go, fuck no, this is batshit, what are you doing? And then Hammond's like, oh good, my grandkids are here, time for the tour. So they load up on the tour bus, and the tour sucks, because none of the dinosaurs are coming out. They're trying to luring them out with goats and shit like that, but none of them come out. And then suddenly... 
not suddenly, because first, uh, they run into a sick Triceratops, which Ellie needs to diagnose because she cares. Um, she's separated from the tour. Tour continues. In front of the T-Rex pen, the power goes out. Why does the power go out? Behind the scenes at this park is a man named Nedry, and he's the programmer who programmed the entire computer system that operates the park. It operates the tour, it operates security, it operates the electric fences. I think those are the three important things we need to know that it does. Sure, it does something with vending machines, too. He loves him a vending machine, besides the point. He feels he's underpaid for what he's doing. So he signs a deal with He Who Shall Not Be Named to bring back embryos, and we will get into that. We will definitely get into Dodgson more than you expect. <laughs> um, he's going to sell out, uh, basically, InGen, the company that's uh, producing the embryos. He's going to steal some, escape the island, and sell them, basically make a bunch more money than he was going to make successfully securing the island. So part of his escape plan is cutting down specific electric fences and putting a lock on the system so that nobody else can touch it. He doesn't undo every fence. He just does enough that he can get through in a jeep to get to the dock. He doesn't make it. Um, so the tour stops. It starts raining. And the T-Rex approaches its no longer electrified fence and starts mauling people. Gennaro gets it in half. The group splits up. Grant's with the grandkids uh, trying to get back to camp. Ellie ends up meeting back at, not camp, visitor center. Yeah. Whatever. Ellie makes it back to the visitor center with Muldoon, and they meet up with Hammond, and Hammond's feeling kind of meh about how everything's going, to put it lightly. Uh, Malcolm gets injured by a T-Rex attack. Must uh, go faster. They end up gathering him, bringing him back to the visitor center. They decide to kill the power for the entire park, full reboot the system in order to bring door security back online. In doing so, they release the raptors into the world. Yay! Good decision. Sam Jackson gets killed. Muldoon gets killed. Ellie electrocutes Hammond's grandson by resetting the breaker. <laughs> Kid deserved it. He's a little shit. <laughs> they all reconvene at the visitor center. Little girl locks a raptor in a closet. T-Rex comes in, saves the day. One of the greatest shots in cinematic history happens. They escape the island. Roll credits. I think I covered... You covered most of it. Pretty much everything that needs to be covered. So. Now let's get into it because oh. I'm looking at the book on your table here. <laughs> it's a thick boy. So going, throwing a reference to our uh, our pod, our, our bonus pod from the weekend. <laughs> oh, Asteroid City? Yes. Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. Uh, actually, not the not the reference I was going to make. I was just going to say, you know how we talked a lot about how uh, Wes Anderson loves him, the framing device? Oh, he sure do. There is a framing device to the book. The introduction to the book is basically a... It's implied that this is a whistleblower account of what happened on InGen's island, because InGen has successfully filed bankruptcy, and because most of their investors were Japanese investors that wanted secrecy, uh, and the Costa Rican government petitioned uh, behind closed doors for reparations, no one actually knows what happened to this company and what happened in August of 1989. Bro, the 80s sure loved a Japanese businessman. It's described in the intro that, like, 
genetic engineering is like the new thing that's going to be the new moral battleground of the era. And part of the problem is like Michael Crichton really has an ax to grind here because he's talking about how scientists are now corporate. And so there's no oversight because they all are interested in the investments and what comes out of them. So you don't have disinterested scientists that are looking for stuff anymore. You just have people that are trying to turn a profit and he says that uh, InGen was actually the third company that failed that year, so it kind of went unremarked upon until you got to uh, the events that happened in this book, because not everyone signed an NDA. Ooh. So, I'm not sure I shut understand. up. <laughs> so, Siri's attacking both of us. <laughs> so then it goes into the events of the book, and it opens, much like the movie does, on a rainy night in Costa Rica. You are watching a doctor uh, who is in a just remote fishing village and she sees a, the, the rain is horrible. It's a horrible thunderstorm. It's been raining for days and she's miserable. And then a helicopter lands and it brings her a man who has been slashed open from shoulder to thigh. So, so is it right shoulder to right thigh or right shoulder to left thigh? Uh, right because... shoulder to left eye, across okay. the vitals. Okay, okay, so vitals. across the vitals. Yes, Got across it. the vitals. Uh, and he's also uh, been slashed to the femoral artery in the thigh. Oh, so he did not survive. No, he does not. Uh, also, he's 18 years old. Um, Legally an adult. And she's told that it was an earth mover accident. He was run over by an earth mover. But she's looking at the, at the damage and she's like, this looks like a mauling. And there's no dirt in the wounds. Uh, so, and there's also this sticky, foamy stuff that's, like, in the wound, and it smells like death. Well, yeah, the earth mover wasn't moving earth, it was moving (laughs) sticky stuff. Uh, Come on, Cody, have you never built a dinosaur-themed amusement park before? This is just... So, they, uh, he dies, he vomits an explosive amount of blood and dies, and then it cuts to... A little girl and her parents on a remote beach in Costa Rica. And she sees this little lizard. And the lizard hops right up on her hand. And then jumps on her face and starts biting her. And then you smash cut to the hospital. So the opening of The Lost World has entered the chat. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So then it cuts to the hospital where you find out that this has been happening all up and down. Costa Rica, the western the western coast of Costa Rica, there's this new epidemic of lizard bites. And then it cuts back to the original doctor's office where a woman has just given birth. To a, a small biting lizard? No, no, to a baby. <laughs> to a baby. Uh, you wish it was a lizard. And the, the baby is in a separate room and the woman hears chirping. The same chirping that the little girl heard when she ran into the lizard the first time. She goes into the, uh, it's dark and raining, of course, and she goes into the room with the baby, and she sees three lizards perched around the edge of the bassinet. And then in the beam of her flashlight, she sees that they are bloody. And then one of the lizards reaches down and bites the baby's face. And so she chases them away, but she knows the baby is dead. She lies about it to the authorities because she doesn't want to get in trouble, and she just says that it's Sid's. No one questions her report. It's Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. SIDS usually ends with a baby with no face. (laughs) Then the doctor that originally diagnosed the basilisk bite uh, in the little girl 
and her name is Tina. That is important because she drew a picture of the lizard and signs it. He actually finds half of the body of one of these lizards and sends it to a doctor or to a oh my goodness, a facility in New York that tests for infectious diseases because he wants to make sure that this new lizard is not going to uh, start hurting people, like not going to start killing people because of diseases. Okay, I was like, it's a little too late. That lizard's already killing people. Because it's biting people and they're worried because they've yeah, heard like about it. Yeah, like lizard rabies or yeah. polio well, actually, or... actually, lizards can't carry rabies. That's something that the mom asks in the book. But the... <laughs> Uh, he's worried that there can be encephalitis, basically. Yeah. That's what he's worried about. So he sends this half-decomposed body along with the picture. And no one recognizes it until a woman who has a kid walks into the lab and is like, oh, who drew the dinosaur? And she is told explicitly, you are not to move this. This is not a dinosaur. It's a lizard. So she takes an x-ray of it and sends it to Alan Grant. And Alan Grant recognizes it as a dinosaur. However, Alan Grant is having a very busy day because he's just been visited by an agent from the EPA who is investigating John Hammond, who funds him to the tune of $30,000 a year, in addition to other funding. Because the EPA is worried that John Hammond is uh, skirting some laws, but they're not sure which ones, because he keeps sending all this expensive technology to Costa Rica, this really remote island off the west coast of it. They describe the specific technology. I don't know enough about it. I'm sure it's outdated. But basically, it's the equivalent of a couple billion dollars of technology. He's got computers in Costa Rica. He... What's he doing with computers in Costa Rica? Well, the thing is, there's another genetic engineering company, Biosyn, which uh, apparently is the villain of the new Jurassic World movies, but that's later. Biosyn is also comp main competition for InGen, which is the company that Lewis Dodgson works for. Wait, he works for... Biosyn. Okay. InGen had, they classified this transfer of technology as, as just a transfer of places. It's still, it didn't leave their company. It's just going to a different place. Uh, but the EPA is worried that he's doing something fishy with it because he's got, I think they said he's got 24 of these particular type of computer that are $2.4 million each. And there had been an issue where... Previously, companies had skirted regulation on uh, biogenetic engineering and bioengineering by going to remote places. And they're worried that this is happening again because Biosyn was actually notorious for testing a rabies vaccine on unsuspecting populace. They had genetically engineered the rabies virus to instead of be something that when you, what, you could breathe in instead of just being bitten. And they tested it on random people in Chile. So Biosyn went and made COVID. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, but they tested, they had a uh, vaccine that they, they released. Uh, but they didn't tell anyone that they were doing this. But they didn't get in trouble because the Chilean government had better stuff to do and the U.S. government didn't have uh, regulation. Better stuff to do, like, fight off an insurrection funded by, like, the U.S.? Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, budget crisis, I believe, is how he describes it in the book. Um, and the actual people who were infected were never aware of it. So Biosyn was just like, whatever. So that's the introduction of Lewis Dodgson in the book is just a name drop that he's the one that engineered this rabies vaccine. Okay, so Alan is sitting there with, with Morris from the EPA, and Morris also tells him that Hammond has been buying up amber, insane amounts of amber, for the last 10 years. And they're not sure why, and they ask him if there's any way that it could be, you could use that in, like, what is the source of amber in dinosaurs? And Alan's like, I don't know, I don't think there's anything you can do with it. 
So then he also says that in addition to all of this technology and the weird amber purchases, he purchased this island, which Alan had never heard of, until he's like, well, you got a consulting fee for working on it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did consult with InGen, but I didn't know it was for an island. So then this gentleman leaves because he's like, we're probably going to drop the investigation because we don't really have anything that we can prove. So then they get the uh, they get the facts from Alice Levin uh, in New York of the dinosaur. And then who should call but John Hammond inviting them down to his island for the weekend. And originally Alan doesn't want to go because he's like, we just found this really promising skeleton in this dig. And um, we also found this Procomps Ignathus. And, and all of a sudden, Hammond gets interested. You just, like, dropped that like you've practiced it, dude. <laughs> I'm listening to the audiobook, so thank you, whoever narrated the audiobook. <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> uh, I, I'm never going to do it again, so we're just going to call them compies, because that's what they call them for the rest of the book. Perfect. Uh, so he tells Hammond about this compie, and he's like, oh, a live specimen. Do you know where it came from? And he's like, yeah, it came from this specific beach in Costa Rica. And Hammond is like, oh interesting have you told anyone else about this and he's like no we haven't and he's like you should come to my island and he basically offers him one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, sixty thousand for ellie and sixty thousand for him uh so they go to the the island they meet ian malcolm and they fly down with dennis nedry the uh computer programmer and everyone hates dennis nedry because you can't have a fat character in a book that everyone likes or a movie in the 90s so uh, they go down, they go to the park, and um, they still aren't entirely sure what's going on uh, until they get to the island and they see the dinosaurs. Oh my god, you guys fucking dinosaurs. Jesus Christ, what the fuck? So they see the dinosaurs. Um... Sorry, I'm scrolling through my my history here. Um, I can do the second verse. (laughs) Holy fuck! (laughs) So they are. It is revealed that the preserve that they purchased this island for is actually Jurassic Park, a theme park showcasing living dinosaurs. Construction is nearly complete. The dinosaurs have been recreated using ancient DNA found in the blood inside insects that were fossilized and preserved in amber. Gaps in the genetic code were filled in with reptilian, avian, or amphibian DNA. And all dinosaurs were engineered to be female to prevent unauthorized breeding. The recent animal attacks and the uh, deaths of several workers have made uh, Hammond's investors a little skittish. So he is now being required by uh, his legal firm, which is uh, Cowan, Swain, and Ross, which is where Gennaro comes from. Uh, Oh, he can't even get one of the partners? Nope. (laughs) So... Hammond requests that Grant and Sattler, along with Ian Malcolm um, and Dennis Nedry, come down. Because Nedry's working. The other three are there to tour it because they also consulted on the building of the park. Ian Malcolm is openly hostile to the project. He expects it to fail because he is a chaos theorist and his his, uh, inception is thoroughly documented throughout the book. So Hammond also invites his grandchildren tim and alexis or lex murphy uh to join the tour uh gennaro is furious at this because he's like hammond this is not a a social function this is you need to save your ass and my ass because we're going to lose billions of dollars 
And so on the island, the park staff includes engineer John Arnold, uh, biotechnologist Henry Wu, game warden Robert Muldoon, public relations manager Ed Regis, and veterinarian Harding. So they go on the tour of the park, and Ellie realizes that they have poisonous plants in the visitor center, like over the pool where children are going to be playing. Uh, you also have eggshells, because they've been told these dinosaurs can't breed. Grant recognizes eggshell immediately, specifically Velociraptor eggshell, in the park. They also run into, uh, it's not a Triceratops in the book, it's a Stegosaurus. Ellie has to figure out uh, that the reason that they're getting sick is because they are like like chickens. They have these things in their stuff. They eat stones to grind up. It's called a gizzard. Yes, gizzards. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's called a gizzard. Uh, you're smiling at me like <laughs> like you're making a joke. I was going to make a, a joke about that band, but I can't remember the full name of the band. <laughs> King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. That's the one. <laughs> Um, excellent band, by the way. Uh, so they discover that the, as the stones are getting smooth, the uh, stegosaurus are basically barfing them back up and finding new stones. And as they're doing that, they're ingesting poisonous berries that are making them sick. Unintended consequences of building your island. So I'm going to interrupt real quick because that's yes. the scene in the movie. Yeah. And she points out this is a toxic plant. Mm -hmm. How do we know they're not eating it? And she goes armpit deep in a pile of shit and doesn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And you just said it's because they're throwing them up, right? They're regurgitating the poisonous plants? No. the what, They're regurgitating the rocks and then... And then ingesting the poison thinking yeah. it's rocks. Yes. Well, yeah. it's because the berries are on the rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the berries are dissolving. So that's why they're uh, not finding not anything. Because they're not eating the plants. They're they're not intending to eat the berries. So every time I watch this movie, when that scene happens, I'm expecting a reveal that never comes. That is that the Stegosaurus is pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's not how this works. <laughs> and I've never had that reveal. But always in my head is like, oh, she's pregnant. They are breeding. Like that. <laughs> anyway, carry on. So we cut back uh, while they're on this tour to the disgruntled chief programmer of Jurassic Park, which is Dennis Nedry. He is committing corporate espionage for Mr. Lewis Dodgson. He is going to deliver him 15 embryos uh, of all the, all the viable species. And I think it's like something like 1.5 million. I don't know if that's per embryo or if that's the total. But basically, uh, Nedry is upset because he was asked to do a bunch of changes that weren't in the original contract. And when he's like, no, I need to be paid more, Jurassic Park and Hammond started smearing his reputation to other people. So he's pissed because now he's not getting paid for work that he should be getting paid for, and they're fucking him out of other jobs. Yep. So that's why he's so disgruntled. Um, he activates a backdoor that he wrote into the park software... So he actually, his intention, his plot is he is going to disable the, the software, steal the embryos, deliver them, and come back. Because he's got a 15-minute window in which to do this. He does not intend to leave the island. He's going to stay on the island afterwards. Because he's going to wipe out his malicious code so they don't know what happens. Because the other thing is, like, there's a whole thing about how you can patent genetically modified animals... 
I think that's a real thing. Yeah. Like, um, Monsanto does that with crops. Yeah, shit. yeah. Basically, that's the reference that he makes in the book, is that they are... What Biosyn thinks they're going to do is create baby dinosaurs that people can take home. Basically, like, pygmy dinosaurs that are genetically engineered only to eat in-gen food. Hammond himself is like, that's a fucking stupid idea. Why would we do that? We're just going to charge whatever we want for people to come to the park. They're going to do proprietary food. <laughs> Yep, that's what that's what Dodgson thinks they're gonna do. Oh, if y'all thought I wasn't gonna go on an anti-capitalist rant tonight, y'all are mistaken. <laughs> so when he is attempting, when Nedry's attempting to rendezvous with the agent, he becomes lost because there's a tropical storm that's happening. Without him to reactivate the park systems, the dinosaurs are able to roam freely. He is killed by a Dilophosaurus, which have been steadily like basically they have been revealing the whole time throughout the book that there are unintended consequences with all of these dinosaurs and a lot of them are actually venomous and you they didn't realize that uh so the dilophosaurus is actually they can't do the river ride uh and they referenced that earlier when they're talking about how the um there's supposed to be a river ride, but they haven't been able to open it yet because of construction delays. The construction delays are that the Dilophosaurus keeps spitting acid into the eyes of workers. And so Dennis Nedry ends up running into one of the Dilophosaurus, and first it spits acid on his clothes and it starts burning his hands. Then it spits it on his neck, and then when he's looking at it to make sure it's not chasing him, it spits in his eyes. So he falls, and then it's described as he feels a pain in his head, and then he realizes that the Dilophosaur is picking him up in his jaws. And the last thing that you hear from Dennis Nedry is that he prays his death is quick. So, <laughs> uh, the okay. Tyrannos... Moving back to our group that is now stuck outside, they have now split up. Um, Ellie stayed, Ellie and the lawyer stayed with Harding, the veterinarian, to uh, take care of the Stegosaurus. And the, the joke that is made is that Ian and um, the kids are in one one car with uh, Ed Regis, who's basically like the marketing guy, and Ian and Grant are in the back car talking. And uh, they <laughs> basically, Ian's like, why is the lawyer staying? And then Grant, like, gives Ellie a once-over, and Ian's like, ah, it's the shorts. <laughs> uh, every man in this book is obsessed with Ellie Sattler, which, to be fair... Well, that's why they cast Laura Dern. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Ugh. Impeccable. So, uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex attacks the tour group, because there's actually two Rexes. On the tour, they see the adult Rex, because they actually put a goat in a field, and the Rex eats it. Um, but there is a juvenile as well. So there's two of them. Uh, so the, the adult attacks the tour group. Grant saves the kids before escaping with them in the jungle. Regis runs like a coward and gets murdered by the juvenile T-Rex in a horrible fucking thing. Uh, and Malcolm is gravely injured because he is also running. Uh, but he ends up getting rescued by Muldoon, who is a uh, game warden, and Gennaro. So the park staff try to reboot the park's computers to reverse Nedry's sabotage, but when they do that, they fail to notice that only the aux power restarts. Mm, uh, so its fuel supply runs out and the park gets fully shut down again. Because originally it was just part of the park that was shut down. 
everything gets shut down, including the Velociraptor cages. Because even Muldoon is like, no, those bitches need to die. Uh, and he actually tells Hammond that he wanted three weapons, and Hammond told him no. Like, Hammond shut down that requisition request, so they only had one, and they don't get it because Nedry steals the car that it's in. Oh, shit. The Velociraptors escape. They kill uh, Arnold, who is the engineer, and Henry Wu, who is the biotechnologist, uh, played by B.D. Wong in the movie. Oh, B.D. Wong. So Henry Wu does not make it out of this. Uh, He does not make it to Jurassic World to be sassy. Granted, the children make their way back to the island's control complex by rafting down the jungle river, narrowly escaping being attacked by the T-Rex and Dilophosaurus. Oh, the scene from Jurassic Park 3. Yeah. Grant switches on the park's main generators and Tim reactivates the park's systems. Uh, Gennaro contacts a supply boat traveling to the mainland from the island and recalls it, acting on suspicions by Grant and the children that dinosaurs are aboard. Because all of this starts because they see raptors, baby raptors, playing on the ship that is leaving that's how dinosaurs are getting to costa rica is they are hiding on the uh, supply ships stowaways so hammond actually is walking outside after they've gotten all the power back on and he gets scared by a t-rex noise and falls down a hill and breaks his ankle The T-Rex noise is the kids playing with the computer, and he gets angry at the kids, and then he gets attacked by compies and eaten. So Hammond also does not survive the book. And his grandkids watch him get eaten. No, they don't. No one knows. Oh, no one knows? No one knows that it's happened. Oh. Uh, uh, Well, that sucks. This is another funny thing, is that he is talking about how the compies are also poisonous, but their poison causes you basically to, like, chill out and just let yourself get eaten. So it's described as it. Uh, he gets bitten, and he's like, you know what? Everything's gonna be great. <laughs> so, so how quickly do like staff learn this and start like harvesting copy venom and smoking it? Well, considering they get eaten if that happens, well, no, they, they harvest the venom and then they go into a different locked room and they just get high <laughs> off of it. They're not next to the copy, letting themselves get eaten. Uh, only one person gets bitten by the copy that we're aware of, besides okay. Hammond. And uh, Nedry also gets partially eaten by compies because that's where they find him. (laughs) Grant actually deduces that using the frog DNA to fill in gaps in the dinosaur's genetic code resulted in an environment that was uh, conducive to causing the dinosaurs to switch, switch gender so that they can start breeding. But I thought that biologically... You're only the gender you're born with. We have a term for virgin birth. Why the fuck do you think we wouldn't have a term for when you switch genders because you have to? It happens in fucking species all the time. These fucking bigots have never watched Jurassic Park, huh? They really haven't. So, uh, the they also realize that there's a flaw in the park system. Because over and over again they talk about how everything is perfect. But what they don't realize is that the park system was told to calculate a certain number of animals when you tell it it stops counting at that number so when you tell it to go higher it keeps counting so the whole time they think there's only 238 dinosaurs in the park by the end of it i think there's 292 Mm. and Um, the computer knows but doesn't tell them because they don't tell the computer to tell them correct uh so so netry's not a good programmer that's actually something they talk about is that because he's so underpaid, there, there's so many bugs that he isn't aware of. But mm. also the way that they were taught to pro it's all about assumptions yeah. and the way that you were told to assume that everything went correctly instead of actually looking at data. 
Grant, Sattler, Muldoon, and Gennaro actually find the wild raptor nests and they compare the hatched eggs with the island's revised population tally before they realize that the raptors are attempting to migrate off the island because they're fucking birds. <laughs> so uh, Malcolm dies from his injuries and the T-Rex attack, so he also does not make it out of the book. Everyone else is evacuated. Well, do- does he die? Because according to the beginning of The Lost World, the doctors did a really good job. So the end at the end of Jurassic Park, per Alan Grant, Ian Malcolm is dead. We are meant to believe that Ian Malcolm is dead at the end of this book. Everyone else is evacuated by the Costa Rican Air Force, which has declared the dinosaurs hazardous and just napalms the shit out of the island. It's actually kind of a poignant thing, because Alan Grant is like, man, I would love to see what happens with these dinosaurs. Like, I would love to study them, but also they are too dangerous to be let loose. Nuke it from orbit. Uh, the survivors are detained in a Costa Rican hotel. Weeks later, Grant is visited by Dr. Martin Gutierrez, who is the one who originally identified the lizard that bit the American girl at the beginning of the book. Uh, Gutierrez informs Grant that an unknown pack of animals has been migrating through the Costa Rican jungle, indicating that dinosaurs have escaped the island and are being reintroduced into Earth's ecosystem. To be continued. All right. So I feel like that answered some questions for, for some plot holes, like the notorious Triceratops, why is it sick plot hole? Mm-hmm. Um, one that I always thought was not a hole, always waited for that scene that never came. Oh yeah, lizards, live birth, it's fine. Yeah, just didn't click with me, because I am stupid. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the adaptation. Yes. So... Steven Spielberg bought the rights to make the movie before the book was published. Yeah, that tracks. Um, he knew what he had. I think he met Crichton years before, and Crichton was sh- uh, shopping the manuscript around. Other directors that wanted to make it, I think, I can't remember what studio, but one studio wanted Tim Burton. Oh, God, no. No. He would not have struck the correct tone. No, 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 no. Spielberg was the right choice. <gasps> or was he? Who do you think could have done it better? No, but well, I guess what I'm going for is kind of the thesis of the whole thing is like, this is a terrible idea and Spielberg makes it still look fucking cool as shit. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if Tim Burton had struck the Edward Scissorhands absurdity vibe, it would kind of work. Which early 90s Tim Burton before he got like deep in his Hell in the Bottom Carter face... Mm-hmm. Like, he might have been able to do something cool with it. Yeah. But, like, no, Spielberg, I mean, who, who are we fucking kidding? It's, it's a near-perfect movie. It's, it's so yeah. good. Um, The writers for the screenplay, Crichton was actually on the screenplay. That makes a lot of sense. Fair enough. Um, And David, oh, I'm going to butcher this last name, K-O-E-P-P, Cope, Kep, Kerp? One of those three. One of them. Um, he also, uh, did the screenplays for Mission Impossible, the original, uh, Tom Cruise one. Okay. And, uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Ooh, okay, I see that. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, cast, Alan Grant was Sam Neill, who'd previously done the piano, uh, Bicentennial Man. He's known for this, though, let's be real. He's so good in this movie, too. Um, Ellie played by Laura Dern. 
God bless you, our lesbian mother. Well, uh, Blue Velvet, October Sky, Last Jedi, some of her bigger credits. But I mean, again, like who does bigger movies than Jurassic Park? A Marriage Story. Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum did bigger movies than Jurassic Park. <laughs> did he though? Did he? Did he? Independence Day. I didn't even know he was in Independence Day. Have you seen Independence Day? I've seen some of it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I knew uh, Will Smith was in it. <laughs> Um, Hammond was, uh, Richard Attenborough. It was actually his first acting role since, like, the 70s, I think? I get the impulse, but also, I, I think you need someone who's a little bit shittier to be Hammond. The thing is, Spielberg saw a lot of himself in Hammond. Of course he did. And that's why he softened the character a lot for the movie. The character had an arc in the movie, learned from his mistakes. Um. Did he, though? Did he? He's still a fucking charlatan. Um, but yeah, no, Spielberg saw a lot of himself in that character. Whereas I feel like Crichton saw a lot of himself in, uh, Malcolm. Yeah, the, this book really feels like it's an excuse for him to talk about chaos theory a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> like, it, the dinosaurs No, I think, are, I think that's like, actually, like, he said that in the past. Like, the dinosaurs are incidental, it was just a convenient, uh, convenient way for him to talk about chaos theory in a hell, in an elevated environment. Absolutely. Uh, one other casting decision I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dodgson. Yes, tell me about Lewis Dodgson, William. Dodgson, played by Cameron Thor in this movie. So, uh... Who's that? So, most, uh, the most recent Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World Dominion, included a lot of returning characters. B.D. Wong came back, um... He could not do that because he died in the book. But, regardless, uh, <laughs> Sam Neill came back, Laura Dern came back, I think Jeff Goldblum came back again. I believe he did. Um, like, the whole gang was back together. And Dodgson was in Dominion. But he was not played by Cameron Thor. Really? Because Cameron Thor was in prison. Is he still in prison? I think he's out now. Uh, the last I heard uh, from reliable sources, he's, he's like living in Bakersfield or something. Like, he's not allowed in LA Is County he, anymore. I was going to say, does he just have a restraining order against LA so, County? If you're listening to this, you can Google Cameron Thor and find out what he did. But here's... Uh, Here's my account. So in, in uh, 2013, when I moved to L.A., I started taking acting classes with Alice Carter, who was Cameron's wife. And after a few years of classes, I graduated from her class to Cameron's class. And around 2015, things got weird. When a former student of his accused him of... Uh, sexual misconduct when she was 13 i believe oh i thought she was 15 it's not I like it makes a difference i don't remember the very specific details because that's that's when you and i were planning our wedding like yeah. we were i was whoa for the purposes of legal that was a joke. Absolutely a joke. When we're talking about actual sex crimes, I'm sorry. But no, while the actual uh, Cameron stuff was going down, that's we were in that. So I was all, already on my way out of the class. But that was kind of a last straw for me. It's when I left the class. Um, he was, in fact, convicted. Um, not every charge stuck. I think the conviction was misconduct with a minor. And the story that I had heard, um, I, don't, I don't even think I need to say allegedly. He did jail time for this. Um, what I had heard was that he took her on a drive up in the Hollywood Hills and they smoked some marijuana. She said that more happened. 
I don't think he was um, found guilty of more than that. I don't know if there was a plea, plea bargain done. I kind of separated myself from that family and that group at that time, so I don't know the exact details of the trial. But he did do time in prison. Um, the studio has since changed its name. A lot of staff has moved. I won't name drop the studio. You can probably find it if you look hard enough, but I don't want to like start anything. Um, because I still care a lot, a lot about a lot of the people I've met in that acting class. And last spring, I met up with a lot of them for the first time in six years. And that's when I found out that he was out of jail. He was living in, I think, Bakersfield. Um, but yeah, that's why that's why Dodgson had a new actor in Jurassic World Dominion. Not that it matters, but do you know who it was? Who the actor was? Yeah. I can find out really quick. Um, um, the, it other... was, the, the funny thing is... Um, I was, you know, I was scrolling through the IMDb trivia to find out, uh, stuff to look up, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole thing with Cameron was in there. There was, really? yeah, there was one bit of trivia about how he was really poor when he first auditioned. He auditioned for Ian Malcolm. Um, I did, I he's like- not a... This is, is going to sound real mean to a man who taught me. He's not a good enough actor. <laughs> I was going to say he doesn't seem sleazy enough. I know that's, that's a weird thing to say considering what you just said. Jeff, Gold, Jeff Goldblum is greasy looking. Yeah. He, he looks shiny. Who they did end up casting was Campbell Scott. Who uh, played Richard Parker in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't know who that is. But you've seen that movie. I have seen that movie. I don't remember it. I don't know of anything else that he did. But it's not like Cameron's profile was any higher. Um, but yeah, the, the he was so poor apparently when he auditioned. Like He went and bought a can of Barbasol for the audition. And ended up using it himself because like he needed to. Like He had to, he had to make it a, like, a personal purchase. For, <laughs> But yeah, the other piece of trivia about him was that they couldn't rehire him for Dominion because he was in jail at the time. Huh. So that came from IMDb. But yeah, I was I was kind of around when that was happening. And it's really fucking weird. <laughs> that is that is weird. Would it would it make you happy to know that Lewis Dodgson gets eaten by dinosaurs in the Lost World? The book? Okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, that's that is that story. <laughs> other other highlights of the cast. Uh, Sam Jackson is um, Mr. Arnold. Arnold. I feel like they hired Sam. Like Sam Jackson is great, but also I feel like they hired him specifically for that one scene where just his arm shows up. Because I feel like it's more. But he wasn't even on set that day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but he's the only black character. Yeah, he is. So that kind of makes it more impactful yeah also this was still like i wouldn't say early in his career but he wasn't samuel motherfucking jackson yet this is pre-pulp fiction i was gonna say yeah he hadn't done pulp fiction yet. like he'd done a few spike lee movies but this was one of his first like major blockbuster roles for sure and then he wound up doing star wars a few years later and Snakes on a plane you know he's sam motherfucking jackson (laughs) uh one other piece of casting so a big change in the book to the movie. Yes. And it's one of those things like I've read about in the past is in the book, The Kids. 
Yes, you have uh, Tim is the older brother who mm-hmm. is into dinosaurs and into computers. Um, although computers is less, it's more like he just recognizes it. Yeah, as um, kids in the 90s did. Yeah. Uh, and his little sister, Lex, who exists basically to scream and be a little shit. Which, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I... Every time I got angry at her in the book, I realized it was because she was written like an actual child. Which means it was actually done well. But, <laughs> you were saying that there was a there was a reason so, that they... So, we were, we were theorizing, or you were theorizing, and it's a thought that I had when I first heard about this before I knew the truth, is that let's make the girl older and make her the computer person and then the boy younger. He's into dinosaurs. That way you give the girl some agency, a little third wave feminism girl power, spice up your life. Um, (laughs) And also like spread that out, give both actors something to do. The truth is way more logistic than that. Yes, what is it? So the actor who played Tim... Uh, auditioned to play the kid in Hook. Oh. And he was good, but he was too young. And Spielberg said, I promise you, I will put you in a movie. And he made two movies in that year and chose not to put him in Schindler's List. Oh, no! <laughs> that's, that's me adding on. That's not something I read. Um, he offered Tim the role, or uh, he offered that actor the role of Tim in Jurassic Park. He actually... Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Which is great, cool. Owning up to your promise, give him this role, which is seriously the role of a lifetime for him, and then realize, okay, we can't have the daughter be younger because this kid's already pretty young. We'll just make the daughter older. But if she's older, she can't just scream, although she was hired based on her scream. Her scream is incredible. So apparently, um, like, she recounted in her audition that, like, they just had her scream. And it was either the casting director or Spielberg, I can't remember who, um, was going through tape and her scream woke up his wife. And that's why they cast her. Ooh, that's good. That's great. I love that. Like, okay, that's real. Put her in the fucking movie. Um, but then they also, you know, she's older. Flesh out the character a little bit. Make her the cringiest hacker shit. She's so fucking cringe. <laughs> every time. Linux, I recognize this. I, I know this. <laughs> I mean, to be This fair- is a Unix system. And it's like the worst, like, slowest moving computer UI. <laughs> to be fair, that is something they talk about in the book is that Tim actually struggles with the UI because he's not super familiar with it. So he keeps getting stuck and having to, like, backtrack through a bunch of dis- different screens. So it's actually poorly organized in the book. Oh, I love that. It's, it's not... The thing is, in the movie, it's not given as poorly organized. It's given as, like, the future of tech is going to be, like... Instead of your Windows 95, <laughs> it's going to look like this. Where, like, there's a city, and you got to walk through your city to find your files. And that's that is stupid. So inefficient. <laughs> And it's using so much processing power on that computer. And you can see it chugging along as she's trying to find the right files. And the raptor's trying to get in. And it's just like, just fucking hit, like, control F door. Come on. Although, I will say, to be fair, they have been trapped outside and under a lot of adrenaline for, like, 12 hours. She wasn't the one who was electrocuted 20 minutes ago, okay? Yeah, she, that's why she's more tired. <laughs> Timmy got jump-started. <laughs> so, um, another thing that I wanted to say is that there's the scene, um, so I mentioned the baby that gets eaten <laughs> in the beginning of the book. Oh, yeah. So, the, the, the book does this thing where, like, it sets up 
the T-Rex as the big threat and you kind of forget about the raptors. Because, like, you're getting actively chased by the T-Rex as the reader throughout the book. Like, it keeps showing up. The velociraptors are kind of forgotten about until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's demonstrated, like, they can plan and they're the real menace. Um, but... There's actually the scene that kind of is like the the opposite of the save the cat moment for the velociraptors in the book is that there's also the scene in the book of the baby velociraptor that has just been born. Um, and it like cuddles with Tim and Alexis and um, Alan Grant. And it's like really cute. And it's like, it's a baby. But when the velociraptors break in, they actually, like, shove the baby velociraptor at the adult velociraptors because they're, like, it, they're thinking it'll be a distraction, and they look back, and they're fucking eating it. Oh. It is the most unsubtle metaphor. Oh, God. Because <laughs> it's, like, nature will find a way. Yeah, it fucking will. It's gonna eat you, you soft bitch. Oh, my God. It's actually really sad because I was, like, oh, that poor baby. You yeah, trusted them. Because the baby in the movie never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I kind of like the parallel of the the babies getting eaten at the beginning and the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think Spielberg wanted the PG-13 rating and not the R. So he took yeah. out the baby eating. Yeah. Which is understandable. So I know you wanted to talk about um, the differences between female and male characters. I know that's a theme you wanted to hit. Yeah, um, there was, they of course talk about how the dinosaurs are all women, but one of the things that I thought was funny is that all of the people that are in power except for Ellie are men. That it, Ellie and Lex are the only women in this book that are involved with the park. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you've also got, like, the doctor at the beginning. You've got um, Tina who gets bitten by the dinosaur. You've got um, Tina's mom who has a name, I just don't remember it. Like, all these women are named, I just don't remember it. So this is not a, this is not a knock on Crichton. I think he's doing this on purpose. Mm-hmm. But there's a joke early on with Gennaro, because he's never met Ellie, and he doesn't know her first name. He just knows her as Dr. Sattler. So he's talking to uh, Grant on the phone, and he just talks about how he's excited to meet him and Dr. I, I'm ex- uh, I've never met Dr. Sattler before. I'm excited to meet him and you tomorrow. Because he doesn't know that Ellie is a woman. Um, And then... The unintentional misgendering of somebody you've never met because you make assumptions. Exactly. And then uh, the Henry Wu, the doctor, as he's walking them through the the biotech plant where they are engineering all the dinosaurs, he talks about how, like, we know all the dinosaurs are women, but we still call the T-Rexes he. Even in the text, the T-Rexes are called he. And I'm like, that is... All right, all right, I see what you're doing here, Crichton. But it's a lot of... You bounce around through the different perspectives, but there's so much male perspective. Mm -hmm. And this movie, the movie is known for being, like, all the dinosaurs are girls, girl power. It's, like, a joke, but it's also, like, kind of not. Yeah, like, there's a point to it. And, And that translates into the movie as well, I think... I think Spielberg recognized that. Uh, we talked about how in the book, Ellie is a sex symbol. And it's... I mean, let's be real. Laura Dern is hot. She's so hot. She is a very, very attractive woman. But she is not eye candy in the movie. She's not treated as that. She's not objectified as much. Yeah. The one time she is... And I, I thought this was really interesting. The first time I noticed this. 
um, the scene in which Malcolm's explaining chaos theory and he's dropping the finger on her hand. And he's holding her hand and he's caressing her hand and he's complimenting her skin and stuff like that. He does that in the book too. He's very weird. So <laughs> 10 minutes later when she's arm deep in fucking shit and then takes off the gloves and she's working it, like he immediately sees this woman working with her hands and the thing he says is, you better wash those before you eat. <laughs> and I just, I just thought it was a lovely parallel of like, oh, she is woman. She's beautiful. She's pure. Oh, she's working? Ugh. Gross. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, I told I texted you because I was uh, listening to the audiobook, and Ellie is. This also feels intentional. She is objectified, but it feels like when Crichton is objectifying her, he's doing it to prove a point because she's literally just existing. Mm-hmm. She is doing the same thing that Alan is doing, but because she's a woman, everyone around her is like, "Ooh, she's hot." Yeah. Um, another thing that's interesting in the book is that there's a there's a throwaway line earlier where because uh, the dig that they're on, what they're looking for are baby velociraptors. They're looking for baby carnivorous dinosaurs because they've only found herbivorous ones. Mm-hmm. So they find one, and it's actually from Ellie's point of view. And Ellie's talking about how um, she knows that Alan wants to study dinosaurs that are. He, he would love to study, like, the rearing habits of dinosaurs because he is of this fringe opinion, fringe opinion at the time, that dinosaurs actually had maternal or paternal instincts. Mm-hmm. Of course, because of the society that we live in, they talk about how male lions, when they take over a new pride, will murder all of the cubs because they're trying to spread their own genetic material and they don't want the dinosaur or they don't want the uh, lionesses wasting their time on another man's genetic material. Plus, killing all the babies brings them into heat so he can create his own babies. So they, of course, immediately assume like pride of lions, ma- uh, patriarchy, like a, a powerful male figure. When they actually run into the actual habits of dinosaurs, the raptors are organized as a matriarchy, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious to me because that's, it's like, again, it's a parallel at the beginning and the end because they talk about this when you first meet Alan and then right before they napalm the island, they see the way that raptors are actually organized. And that feels like a really subtle hint by Crichton that he's like, hey, you need to abandon expectations and think about how things actually work or could actually work. And, I mean, a lot of that stuff is cut for the movie for runtime. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, But there's still some of that there of, like, no, shut the fuck up and pay attention. Ellie is constantly the one to remind people that this isn't theoretical chaos happening. This is, people are in danger. Uh, There's a line she says where she's like, people out there are dying. And that's what snaps Hammond out. And then a few minutes later... He uses that same line to get um, Arnold to do something. Ah. He says people out there are dying. He comes from her. Also, Ellie traps a raptor in the maintenance shed. Lex traps a raptor in the freezer. Yeah. It's the women who outsmart them. The women not who outsmart the, the women? The men, are, the men are all run and gun with them. <laughs> but the women figure that shit out. And I, I think Spielberg always has respected women more than a lot of men of his generation. I mean, look his at, his uh, uh, partnership with Kathleen Kennedy through their entire careers. I'm also like, thinking um, the way that he handled Drew Barrymore in E.T. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Which is, I have a DVD copy sitting right on the table. and yep, I, right underneath Jurassic Park. Uh, it's too late to watch it tonight, but I will be watching <laughs> that tomorrow night. I can't wait because I love that movie. But yeah, like it's that female point of view that snaps the men out of their, their hubris. I feel like there's a, there's a conversation there that's like, especially because all the dinosaurs are women... And they're constantly being underestimated. Like, that feels like a subtle... Like, yeah. they can't be that smart. It's just dinosaurs. It's just women. And maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, but I'm choosing to accept it. Yeah. Michael Crichton's dead. He can't contradict me. <laughs> Spielberg can. <laughs> Come on the podcast, Spielberg. Debate me. <laughs> this is an official invitation to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Debate if, me in the marketplace of ideas, Spielberg. If you ever want to come on the pod, just come to our tiny apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, you are still not welcome. I will. I will rent another microphone for you, sir. <laughs> you can. You can even use mine if you so choose. <laughs> so there was there was something else that you mentioned earlier that you wanted to rant about. Is it capitalism? It's capitalism. Are we talking about fucking capitalism? Hell yeah. Oh, let's fucking go. Okay, I took notes. So I got I got a little ripped last night when I was watching this. <laughs> did you now? Oh, I sure did. I figured I've seen this movie a dozen times now. I just need I just need to watch it again to refresh the old the old memory banks. Uh-huh. Um and oh, fuck capitalism. So hard. And this movie does it on screen and in the meta. Here we go. So common internet joke about this movie appears in the credits dinosaur supervisor phil tippett <laughs> what is the story with phil tippett let's get into it so this movie was in pre-production as early as i think 1990 uh maybe even 88 or 89 it was in pre-production for a few years before they made it and post for another year in pre-production, the plan was, at the time, to do stop-motion animation for dinosaurs. That's how that's always been done. Spielberg hired Phil Tippett to do that. He was a, a stop-motion guy, and he won the bid. He was hired to create the dinosaur effects. And I forget... Might have been ILM? But one production house did a test reel of a full-body T-Rex in a desert. And Spielberg saw it and went, oh... We can do this CGI. We don't have to do... We can do this realistically with CGI and then animatronics for close-ups. We don't need to do stop motion. Shit, we already hired Phil Tippett. <laughs> um, who had already done a ton of study into how a dinosaur, how a creature of that size would move physically, like how it would look in the world. He's already done the work. So he ended up supervising the CG artists to make sure that when they run, it looks like how something that size would run. And that's how he came to be Dinosaur Supervisor. When he first saw this test footage, he said, oh, my job is extinct. Does that sound familiar to you? Because that's a fucking line in the movie. When they first land on the island, uh, who is it, Hammond or... No, Malcolm asks uh, Ellie and... Grant, how does it feel knowing your jobs are now extinct? And later on, when uh, Grant's in the tree with the kids, uh, Lex asks him, so what are you and Ellie going to do now that you don't have to dig up dinosaur bones anymore? And it's such a capitalist thing to make this new innovation and excitedly show the world how you're taking away their jobs. In fact, at my job, which I don't speak too much about for reasons... Uh, I had a dealer uh, meeting last week in which the dealer, when we had the meeting to kind of confront the dealer about 
fucking up invoices regularly. And his response to us was, hey, why don't you try this new automation shit we have? Bill, you won't have to do much with us anymore. It'll all be automated. And I'm like, cool, you're telling me to do this new thing that gives me no job. You're putting my uh, financial income at risk because your accountants can't invoice shit properly. No. So. So, yeah, it's fucking capitalism. <laughs> so, you know how Alan Grant hates computers in the movie? Is that in the movie? Oh, yeah, in the beginning when, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, so, it's, it's so briefly in the movie. In the movie, uh, they talk about how they've actually started using this thing called Thumper, which you shoot a lead slug into the ground and it um, creates shockwaves so you can see around a skeleton. Mm -hmm. It's kind of in the movie with the um, the computer screen that they're looking at. And yes. when he gets too close to it, like, statics and stuff. Yes. That scene. So, um... There's actually a quote that I wrote down from the book that says uh, the kids tell him that in a few years when the computers get better, you're going to be able to get a good enough picture that excavation would be irrelevant. He's already facing his yeah. job going away. But the other thing about this is that as soon as they actually address what you bring up in the book, which is that. Alan realizes the implications immediately like, oh, hey, these dinosaurs are back. That's really cool. I can now observe them in the wild. I basically, I can become a researcher instead of a paleontologist. Yeah. He still has skills that can transfer. Like he still knows enough about these creatures that he's got a head start on the study. And he actually talks about how um, he started getting called with genetic engineering. He started getting called to do uh, research and consulting and talk about stuff because that's those skills are still relevant as genetic engineering is happening because mm -hmm. he can talk with authority about these different things that are happening another thing that ties into that is there's another quote that i wrote down after almost 150 years of research and excavation all around the world they still knew almost nothing about what dinosaurs had really been like yep and this movie in theory like that's set up like oh hopeful we're gonna see what happens but it's not because we still don't because they are still genetically engineering the dinosaurs. Yeah, they're still like it's not 100% DNA. It's yeah. still in captivity, sort of. Um, it's it's in a controlled environment, which is not the and wild. Not to quote the bad movies, but one of the good things that B.D. Wong's character, Henry Wu, talks about in Jurassic World when he's confronting the billionaire that's mad at him is he's like, you told us to make them cooler. You told us to change the expectations and play with them because we know dinosaurs are fucking feathered, yep. but we didn't. You wanted a lizard that looked cool they didn't know that in 93 though no they did they learned that like it was theorized in the 80s yeah but they didn't know for sure until i think 2005 or something like that it was like even later than that i think that was officially documented yeah it, it depends on I, the species um they still don't know it for t-rex t-rex they still think uh, may have had feathers in its youth but like molted them and was scaly or yeah skinned there's but if you're a dinosaur nerd uh, i do actually recommend two books there's a book called the dinosaur's bones and it is about the discovery of the first t-rex skeleton um and there is another book that i will have to probably have bill drop in the notes i can't remember it but it is about what happened the day that the uh, asteroid struck and it is fascinating that book is anamorphs megamorphs 2 in the time of dinosaurs <laughs> 
And no. as, as we all know, there were two alien races on Earth at the time, alongside the dinosaurs. One of them was the Pemelites. I can't remember the name of the other one. But it's the other one that got mad, and they actually redirected an asteroid to hit the Earth. And the Animorphs knew it was about to happen, but they needed it so that the Serio Rip could bring them back to modern times. So they let it happen, and they let the Pemelites get destroyed. And the only survivors were the Chi, as we all know, the android race that lives among us. I'm the one that talks about the books, William. <laughs> Listen. I told you Animorphs was coming back. <laughs> so, uh, continue. Now that I've interrupted your capitalism rant, please go ahead and continue. So, um, that was the end of that part of the rant. But yes. uh, you mentioned earlier the, um, the bit with how much funding Hammond was going to offer. Yes, $120,000 each for three days' work. So it's increased in the movie due to inflation. Yes. Um, <clears throat> he's already uh, funding them to the tune of fifty k a year, and he offers full funding for three years, so one hundred fifty k. He's putting down $150,000 to try and beat a $20 million lawsuit. And to the paleontologists, that's the world to them. They're getting wined and dined for a weekend. Mm-hmm. They're getting... Six figures to continue their dig in Montana and continue doing what they love. They get to see real dinosaurs. And he's like, that is a drop in the bucket to what I could lose. Although they don't know that yet, right? They never know about the, the lawsuit. No, no, I mean, sorry. The um, They don't know that there's actual dinosaurs. Oh, they, correct. He just tells them it's a preserve. Correct. Okay. Yeah, he's, they, he, they, they know that he's working on a nature preserve. Okay. Um, They don't know the extent. Um, They find out pretty fucking quick. Yes, they do. So... A common line that is spoken throughout the movie. I don't know if it's in the book as well, but I've spared no expense. A classic Hammond line. He says it all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's very clearly sparing expenses. And before you even, uh, before you see uh, the extent of what Nedry's going to do to fuck shit up, the hints are there. The expenses he hasn't spared are surface level. The whole park is gilded. It's, it's shiny and clean and, like, they've got a massive T-Rex skeleton. They've got these gorgeous plants. They're toxic, like you said earlier. All this stuff. They've got this five-star chef cooking up Chilean sea bass for them for dinner. But the first thing they do is that little tour thing, that little video thing, and it moves. Mm-hmm. And it starts moving. And they're like, oh, we want to go in the lab. Can we see the lab? How do we get this bar up? And he's like, you can't. This is kind of a, a ride. And they just go... And they lift the bar up with no fucking effort. There's no safety on this thing. When they take the tour, these two unmanned Ford Explorers roll up. There's no safety gates there. There's no yellow line like you see in an amusement park with a gate that swings open once the ride operator says it's time to board the train. There is nothing stopping an excited kid from running in front of one of those cars. But holy shit, the cars are self-driving. They've spared no expense. They uh, are not actually self-driving. They're on an electric track. They're on an electric track. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I misspoke. An underground electric track. but It's it's above ground in the movie. You see the track. Oh, it's supposed yeah. to be underground in the book. I feel like the majority... Like, tomato, tomato. Yeah. Um, the actual... That technology wasn't there until uh, Daddy Elon invented self-driving cars for the Tesla... But um, in the movie, for the actual filming that of that actually aims for children, <laughs> and then explodes. Um, the the way they did it in the movie was in the trunk. They had a driver remote driving from the trunk with a monitor, and there were two cameras, and you can see the cameras under the Fords in some shots. That's amazing. How they do it? 
I think um, that's how they drove the Batmobile in the Burton movies, too. Do they ever specify how many people it takes to run the... Um, to run the island? They mention at one point that the whole island can be run by a few people in one room. Uh, in the book, they specify the whole island can be run by 20 people. Hey, you underpay one programmer to make computers do the whole thing? Hey, you can write a whole movie with a, a freshman in college and chat GPT now. So, yeah, this stuff's still fucking relevant. We haven't even talked about Ocean Gate. Um... <laughs> Another thing I thought was hilarious was when he's selling them at the, the Chilean sea bass dinner. He's talking about, like, there's all these graphics on screens behind them about profit margins and stuff like that. He's speculating, like, $20 billion in 89 in the book. All of this stuff. And they're like, we could, we could sell tickets. Like, people will pay any price. $2,000 a day. $10,000 a day. And then he admits that the only operating parts of the park are the visitor center and the tour. And it will be six months before another ride or attraction even fucking opens. And then Hammond is like, I think I'll get into Hammond now. Now's a good time to get into Hammond. Hammond is like, I don't want to separate this from, you know, working class people. I want everybody to be able to experience this. And then the lawyer's like, oh, we could do a coupon day. <laughs> how would you, first of all, how would coupon day for this remote island off the coast of Costa Rica work for, say, a poor that? family in rural Montana? <laughs> right? Like, how will this work? Uh, but Hammond, I noticed something. And I don't know if this is in the book at all or if it was just in the movie. Does he, is he hiding his class? Like, is he, is he hiding his, maybe class isn't the right word. Because it's not clear in the movie where he gets his money, if it's old money, new money, stolen money. They describe him... Oh, no, he's invested. He's an idea. He's the ideas guy. Never mind. He's, he's got his investors. Yeah. Um, he, yes, but also he's uh, implied to be... Uh, Alan describes him at one point. He's eccentric as old rich men are. Okay. So it's, it's implied that he's old money, basically. So I caught him a few times in the movie hiding his background. I don't know if you ever caught the seeing it. The two I noticed, there's one point where he starts saying the word schedule and how you and I pronounce schedule? it. He starts it with a shed and then he corrects himself to schedule. He's hiding. I think he's Scottish. Okay. Um, and then there's another one when he's describing the flea circus, his first grift. I mean, his first attraction. P.T. Barnum? Um, yeah, right. Uh, Walt Disney meets P.T. Barnum meets Elon fucking Musk. When he's describing quote, sorry. when he's describing the flea uh, the the flea circus, he starts referring to it as a merry-go-round, and then cuts himself off and says carousel. And like, but those are like opposite, almost. I I feel like I grew up knowing it as a merry-go-round, but the like Disneyland has a carousel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I would go to the merry-go-round at Knobles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a class thing. I was just thinking that like schedule feels feels upper class and merry-go-round feels lower class. I feel like schedule feels upper class because it's British and like British is American film shorthand for upper class. That makes this is way more subtle because I've seen this movie a dozen times. And this is the first time I've really caught that he's doing that. Um, the, actually, it's funny you specifically bring up Disney because there is after the EPA lawyer leaves, uh, Ellie and. Um, Alan are talking and he's like what do you think and Ellie's like he's naive 
Uh, and Alan says, you like the part where John Hammond is the evil arch-villain? John Hammond's about as sinister as Walt Disney. <laughs> Fam- also, with this Famous thing- lover of all communities, Walt Disney. <laughs> when, uh, when did they build Walt Disney World? 56. Oh, okay. Uh, just... Oh, Disney World, sorry, 73? Okay, so it would already have been done. Oh, yeah. Um, at this point, even MGM Studios was open. Oh, okay. uh, Animal Kingdom had not yet opened. That was 2000, 2001-ish, 99, somewhere around there. It was open when I went in 2000. So... Okay, 99, 2000 then. Yeah. It just, it makes me laugh knowing what we know about Walt Disney now. Because Walt Disney was, like, notoriously very, like, strict about his job. And he mm-hmm. had some personal issues. Yeah. The thing with Disney, and it's a great line from the movie, is like, he still wanted people to leave the park happy. And as Malcolm puts it, if Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. (laughs) Maybe they should. (laughs) No, when Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, it still takes a life or two because people fucking drink that water. Code H! Code H! Oh no! <laughs> co-grandma! If you don't know. <laughs> Let's do a little, little, little co-grandma tangent if you don't know. Uh, co-grandma is what security says, or Code H, yes. um, at either park. Uh, if they catch somebody uh, spreading a loved one's ashes on one of the rides. Because I don't, I don't believe this is the rule in California, but the law in Florida. No, it's in California as well. Oh, it is okay. both in both California and Florida. It is considered an active homicide if you have the any remains of a deceased person if, until they can validate. If you're spreading remains without a death certificate, it's considered a homicide. So if they see that, it's code H for homicide or code grandma, and they will pull you off the ride and they will take you to security and you will be questioned and you better have a fucking death cer- certificate or an investigation on you may be opened. Yes. Don't spread ashes at Disney World. Also, uh, all of the people that have done that in all of the water attractions don't get the water in your mouth you will get unfor- unforeseen diseases I, th- I think it's just safe at either disney park don't get the water in your mouth just just don't yeah just don't get it in your mouth yeah just if you're if you gotta spread ashes at disney just do it great escape style just put put the ashes in little pockets inside <laughs> your pants and then put your hands in your pockets and just pull a string and open them and just dribble down your pants that's how you do it that way no one knows what you're doing Grandma's satisfied that she's living with the land for the rest of her life. (laughs) They do have cast members that are trained to spot this. So don't do it. Don't do it. Now that we've gone on our weird Disney tangent. I mean, it was going to happen. We're talking about fucking Jurassic Park here. Fair. Another safety thing that I thought was funny. uh, The the self-driving Fords. Yes. Have you ever noticed the plexiglass shield in front of the steering wheel so that if you sit in that seat, you can't drive the car? No, I never did. There's a plexiglass shield in front of the steering wheel so that you can't just take control of the car. Why wouldn't they just take the steering wheel out? Why don't you have that available in case, I don't know, a T-Rex gets out and you need to drive away? But you can't drive away. They're on a track. That's the the problem (laughs) is that you might need to get off the track. (laughs) That T-Rex is going to learn. I'm just going to lay down here and open my mouth and the cars will drive right on in. You know the famous thing in the movie about how, like, because I believe Alan is the one that says you can't, uh, if you don't move, they can't see you? Yeah, that's what he says. He doesn't know that. He has to figure it out because he gets out of the car and he's about to run away after the T-Rex has thrown Malcolm into the bushes, but he doesn't move. 
and the T-Rex goes the whole way around the car and it knows he's supposed to be there, but it can't see him. And it take he never fully recognizes it, but the reader does because in the meantime, you've gone back to the vet and Ellie and Gennaro. The, the vet has explained to uh, Ellie that they have amphibian sight. So amphibian sight is trained to look for fast moving objects. Mm-hmm. So I learned that from they, Animorphs. It's not that they can't see you. It's that they're not noticing you if yeah. you're not moving. Exactly. So I because thought that was a fun difference. They're recognizing every piece of movement. Yeah. They're not going to focus on the thing not moving. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's that's actually really well explained in one of the early Animorphs books. I can't remember which one. I apologize. Probably the one with the body horror. It could be the first one when he becomes a lizard, but I don't think so. <laughs> um, the one with the body horror. <laughs> Gestures at shelf of every Animorphs book. <laughs> I have a few questions for you, but I have like nothing else really I wanted to dive into. Um, Did you have anything else you wanted to, to really jump into before I ask my few questions? No, I had something, but it disappeared. All right, so, so just a few questions to see if th- things are touched on in the book. Okay. In the movie, uh, when Hammond and Nedry have their scene about money. Yes. Um, the gist of it is basically Nedry's got money issues, has been asking for a raise, and Hammond keeps denying him. And Nedry storms off to get chips or something from the vending machine. Hammond says we should call his people in Cambridge. What is that a reference to? Or is that a reference to anything? Um, it's, if anything, it's a reference to the fact that his company is there. Cause he, okay. Nedry is the lead programmer, but his company is there. It's never referenced. The money issues are never referenced. It's only Nedry talking. Like the money issues have been well settled by the time Nedry shows up to the thing. Cause they've already started ruining his career otherwise. Gotcha. So it's gotcha. less, I understand why they had to put the exposition in the movie. It's, it's not really exposing much though like like this it's the specificity about his people in cambridge that i caught this time and i was like who the fuck is in i I didn't realize that he was he was an i guess he's an independent contractor or subcontractor he is labeled as like there uh at one point alan and ellie get copies of the blueprints for the park and it like lists all the people that are involved and he hit there's a company and then he is specifically listed as a lead programmer okay so, so i believe yeah. he's contracted on gotcha because gotcha. his stuff is through contract and that's how they're fucking him. that's simple yeah. i didn't I, I thought it would be less but i believe that. i believe they reference that his company is from massachusetts maybe that would make sense if he's i feel like his company's just gathering up students from mit <laughs> probably um second question i had for you yes does alan grant threaten a shitty child with a raptor claw no that's actually a big difference alan actively likes children in the book hmm the explanation Fuck. The explanation for why he likes children is because there's no one else that is as fascinated by dinosaurs. That makes sense, but I love his arc in the movie. That like like through the circumstances of this disaster he learns to love kids. That's a great character arc. Can we talk about the sexual tension between Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler? Because it is never made explicit in the book. But it is heavily implied. It's, yeah, oh, it's, he is such a commitment phobe that, like, there's only one moment in the movie that he makes reference to being with Ellie. 
in more than a uh, business partner sense. Being and it's with when her. it's when uh, Malcolm flat out asks, "Is she seeing someone?" And he's like, "Yeah, he, she is." But like they don't even so much as hold hands. He is not an affectionate person, at least publicly. Oh no, they hug when they get reunited. When she comes out of the the thing and he sees her and she's like, "Run!" and then she runs to him like right into his arms and they just embrace. Aww. I never caught that because she says run and I just expected like I was just auto completed that scene in my brain to they run away. But no, they actually embrace. It's very cute. So I just double checked in the in the book. How old do you think Alan Grant is? How old do you think he is supposed to be? He is supposed to be 42 years old. He is supposed to be 40. How old do you think Ellie Sattler is? In the movie, 26. She is a grad student. She is 24. Okay. <laughs> okay, a little on the young side. How old is he in the book? He is 40. Oh, God, I hate how close I was. <laughs> Ew. Alright, what's the creepy age? So 40 divided by 2 plus 7. She's a little young for you, big guy. She's a little young for you. Gotta wait a little bit. <laughs> Although it is a good thing that he does not recognize at all in the movie that Lex has a big fucking crush on him. Like, she excitedly holds his hand at one point and then looks up at him, and he's just like, fucking kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, I actually, uh, I did a little bit of research on this, just because I was curious about what happened. Um, but there's a fun fact about Sam Neill in this movie. Oh, yeah? Do you remember the fun fact? Is it that he thought he was going to die during the hurricane that hit set? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want to talk about that. Oh, dude. Uh, okay, give your fact, and then we'll talk about the hurricane. Sam Neill did not think he did a good job in this movie. He was not happy with his performance I in this movie. I did read that today, yeah. And that's why he came back for the third Jurassic Park yeah, movie. He yeah. wanted a do-over. Which is sad, because no one remembers his performance in the third one. No, but uh, the hurricane we're talking about, uh, during shoots in Hawaii. So, uh, us as proud flag-bearing Americans, <laughs> when we think of 9-11, we remember the attacks in 2001. Hawaii had a different 9-11. <laughs> On September 11th, 1991, I believe, a hurricane whose name I cannot remember hit Hawaii and destroyed sets, leveled stuff. Most of the cast and crew had to, and I say most um, for a reason, they had to basically convene, pack all their stuff, move down into a basement ballroom in the hotel they were staying in, and camp during the hurricane, just in case. The one cast member who didn't was Attenborough. He slept through the whole thing. Of course he did. He was a million years old. When asked about it, his response was, I survived the Blitz. <laughs> oh my god! But beforehand, before this happened, they were on the beach that morning, um, Sam Neill and Laura Dern, and oh, I can't remember the exact thing she says, but she's like, do you think we'll be okay? And he's like, Laura, we'll probably die tonight. <laughs> like, and I believe, I believe she laughed. Uh, Hurricane and Nikki. I just looked it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and it was September 5th, 1992. And then speaking of women solving problems, um, <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy on set. Yes. She followed up after, as soon as she could, as soon as it was safe to, she left the hotel, went to the airport to find a payphone. Airport was trash because they weren't on the main island. They were on a different island. Kauai? 
I can't remember. Yes. Because Hawaii uh, is the big island. It's Kauai. They shot, I think, one scene on Oahu. Um, anyway, she found her way back to Honolulu. I think she, like, hopped on a fishing boat or something. I don't remember. Um, but from a payphone in Honolulu, arranged aid from the big island and from L.A. to help repair the island. Oh. Yeah. All right, Kathleen. She's a fucking boss. All right. Fucking boss. So, speaking of, of rain... There is there is a big, possibly the biggest thing about this movie. Uh, before we get into that, some of the storm shots in the movie are shots of the hurricane. Oh damn! That one of the the cinematographers uh, built up the courage to shoot some of the hurricane before they went down. So yeah, there is some actual footage of that of that storm. Um, you could say it's the the big lizard in the room. <laughs> The animatronic T-Rex. What a fucking piece of machinery. The icon. My God, what a queen. The animatronic... Steven Spielberg. He also did Jaws, right? He did. What is it with him and wet animatronics just ruining his life? Maybe water and machinery don't mix. (laughs) The the story that I always heard... Ask ask Stockton Rush about that. (laughs) Oh, sorry. A little too late to ask that question now, huh? I might need to cut that one. <laughs> you probably do. That was a little rough. I said that mostly for you. Thank you. <laughs> so, the story I feel like everyone knows is that the skin of the T-Rex kept peeling off because of the water. And so, the only way you could keep it on the frame was to actually crawl inside the machinery and reattach it from the inside. And of course, the person whose job it was to do that was told one thing, which was, if this turns on while you're inside it, say your prayers because you're going to die. Because it will crush you. And uh, apparently what happened was exactly that. The person was inside reattaching the skin, and I don't know whether it turned on by itself because of the weird wetness or... The moisture would cause the thing to just move and stutter all the time, and it would freak everybody out. So he was inside it. I believe it was a man. He was inside reattaching the skin and it started moving. So he basically curled up into a ball and prayed and did not get deft. That's good. <laughs> um, that animatronic was so big. It was described. Um, people needed to be away from it when it turned on because it felt like a bus driving by when that head moved. That's how it was described. That kind of just force, just pure mechanical force and inertia, oh. just moving air like that. And it looks so fucking good on screen. It looks so good even now. And like, I will rant about capitalism until the cows come home. But my God, worth every penny. They brought this movie in under budget and 12 days ahead of schedule. Like... <laughs> Spielberg Spielberg knew how to make a goddamn movie. So, do you have anything else that you want to talk about? Um, uh, imagine editing this movie uh, while you're shooting Schindler's List. Oh my god. Just, just think about that for a while. <sighs> and that's why he took a four-year break from directing. Didn't he do... No, uh, he was supposed to do the second Roger Rabbit and chose yeah. not to because of Schindler's List. Because a- after he did Schindler's List, he was like, I can't do anything with Nazis right now, you guys. 
I'm a little, I'm all Nazi'd out. <laughs> so I have an important question for you. Okay. Even having the conversation that we had today, knowing all of the pitfalls, if you had the money and it existed, would you go to a real life Jurassic Park? Fuck, probably. My answer is unequivocally yes. I wouldn't go opening year. Fair. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let you gotta it, wait for coupon days. <laughs> when coupon day rolls around, I'm your fucking man. I I would <laughs> when, go when it becomes when it becomes a like a one day excursion on a like a Caribbean cruise. When it's that level of accessible, I'll go to Jurassic Park. I would absolutely go to Jurassic Park. If I get disemboweled by a velociraptor, that's the way God wanted me to die. Okay. <laughs> Well, then, do I have a submarine voyage for you? <laughs> it's so... Robert Evans and his Behind the Bastards podcast did a two-part on Stockton Rush. Yes. He's the Ocean Gate guy. He's the inspiration for this episode. I mean, it is the 30-year anniversary of the movie, like, I think this week. Or, like, last <laughs> month. Whatever. Some of the things that I heard about this guy... Because he wasn't the only guy doing submersible tours of the Titanic... Other people were doing it as well. I mean, Cameron's been down there. James Cameron, not Predator yes. Cameron. Um, James Cameron's been down there like 30 fucking times. He was down there on 9-11. Yes, he was. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite things to come up in the last couple of weeks in the aftermath of Ocean Gate. It's like the video of him coming out of the submersible and finding out that 9-11 happened. Was it like Bill Pullman telling it or Paxton or one of the Bills? It Whichever might, one is it in might that have movie. been. It was, it was whoever he, is the Because he dude. stopped making movies after Titanic for like 15 years. But it might have been Bill Paxton. Anywho, I digress. Stockton Ocean Gate. Yes. Was so fucking slapdash. Like they didn't have their submersible classed. They legally didn't have to, but they didn't do it. Other companies had theirs classed. So what he would do to get people to buy tickets for this is wine and dine them in Hammond fashion. Yeah. He would take people out for, like he would show up personally and, it, like, when Hammond shows up at the tent at the beginning of the movie and he opens a bottle of Moe and, like, is like, I'm taking you to this excursion and I'm going to fund your whole thing, that's Stockton Rush shit. That is mad millionaire shit. You that know, is that is the shit that inspired probably the best line in this movie, if you don't mind me reading the quote. Not at all. And it is Malcolm in the dinner, the, the Chilean sea bass dinner. And it's it resonates so well with every technological advancement today with the the use of quote ai algorithmic learning if you want to be precise about what it really is yeah. um before that crypto and the metaverse and vr if i may i'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're using here it didn't require any discipline to attain it you read what others had done and you took the next step you didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves so you don't take any responsibility for it you stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you patented it, packaged it, and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it? You were so preoccupied with whether or not you could that you didn't stop to think if you should. That is word for word in the novel. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the focal point of, of Jurassic Park. It, it is... You, you thought, you didn't think beyond whether or not you could to know whether you should. So, in the book, they actually address that. 
because Gennaro, the lawyer, makes it to the end, they go, they drag him almost physically to the raptor nests because Muldoon and Sattler and um, Grant have all been out there. And yes, Gennaro also faced them, whatever, but they work with these animals for a living. Like, Muldoon is a big game hunter. That's an accurate thing from that they kept in both. Mm. And Alan straight up tells him, like, you can't absolve yourself of the responsibility for this island just because you didn't create the dinosaurs. You are still passing it off to someone else by just blowing up this island. We need to know what they are doing because we need to know that we're getting all of them. And you are just as responsible for this as Hammond is and as Wu is. You don't get to get off the hook. Yep. And they drive that point home with Gennaro because so many times you have people that do things and they're like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. It's actually really fascinating with Oppenheimer coming out that we're kind of exploring that. It's like, Mm -hmm. are you responsible for all of the deaths if you created this thing? And yeah, even though he's not the one that dropped the bomb, all of the scientists that worked on that bomb are responsible. They have that blood on their hands. Mm -hmm. And that feels like the thesis of this. It's that you can't just absolve your responsibility by saying, oh, well, I didn't know what was going to happen. Another. I, I was just innovating. I'm an innovator. I'm moving fast and I'm breaking things. The first, there's two quotes in the beginning of the book. I'm not going to read the first one because it's basically talking about reptiles and that doesn't really matter. It's just thematic. There's a quote from Erwin Chargaff from 1972. The quote is, You cannot recall a new form of life. Once you have created this new life, you can't just wish it away. And I feel like a lot of parents need to learn that too. Yeah! Let's not get into that because we're already at an hour 45. (laughs) I'm so glad we recorded this a week ahead of time. I've got six days to edit this and it's going to take me all of them. <laughs> we like dinosaurs. When you when you take a good book, I I assume you recommend this book. I I do. It is a lot of talking back and forth and there's some pretty high level concepts but he breaks them down as much as possible. Yeah. Um, like when when we picked up the book from the library, you were counting the days we had till we had to record, <laughs> how many pages, and then you read it in a fucking day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's the copy that I'm reading is the 25th anniversary edition and it is 448 pages. Uh I did read the I kind of listened split back and forth between the um audiobook available on Audible and I read the book. I read about 250 pages of it in a sitting because it builds. It's a lot like um, Princess Bride, I think, is one I talked about where everything sort of... Like uh, stacks on itself. And yes. Then, yeah. And it, it speeds up. Oh, The Martian is the one that I'm thinking of yeah, where yeah, yeah, everything yeah, yeah, yeah. speeds up. Good example. Um, and by the time you get to the dinosaurs, it's already like 200 pages in. Um, and then it's like you're watching everything crumble and you just keep pulling ahead because you're like, how is this going to fall apart? Uh, but I do highly recommend it. I am. I was actually a little sad when I finished it because I found out that Michael Crichton had died because I did not know he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died back in 2008. Um, but I do highly recommend it. I'm probably just for funsies going to read The Lost World. Um, well, 
We haven't decided what we're doing next yet. This is true. We have not. I believe it is up to you, William. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> Throwing it right to you. Fuck, I am unprepared. Throwing to... you right under that Ford like... Explorer on an electric track. <laughs> right into the Raptor pen. Um, shit. No, I have I have no idea. Um, I mean, I have a suggestion, but I feel a little guilty because I also suggested Jurassic Park. Oh, no. I had to watch one of the best movies ever made. Oh, Oh, what a horrible suggestion. I got to talk about Jurassic Park for two hours. Oh, what a bad evening I'm having. What suggestion do you have? What I was going to suggest is a new movie that just came out. It is animated and it is based on a graphic novel. So it's not a full novel. It is one of my favorite graphic novels of the last 10 years. Uh, It is Nimona by N.D. Stevenson. So next week is Lost World. No, No, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that, because that came out on uh, Netflix, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And who knows, with Netflix, you got to make sure it's still on there. Actually, is it already out? Uh, Yes, it is. Yeah, so I guess uh, in uh, two weeks we'll do Nimona. But until then, if you would like to be found... You can find me, uh, Cody, on Twitter uh, for as long as that lasts at Pretty Special. Uh, you can also find me on Goodreads at Cody Elizabeth Beck. Uh, William, where can people find you? You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, as long as you haven't exceeded your rate limit, <laughs> and Letterboxd at Mr. Billy Beck. And where um, can you find the pod? The podcast uh, currently on Twitter at Soon Major Pod. It's a smaller account, so it's harder to tweet from there because that rate limit exceeds faster. Um, I know there's ways around it. I'm literally not hit my rate limit at all. I know, you fucking bastard. (laughs) (laughs) That first day was just torture for me. I hit that rate limit at 8 a.m. and I was like, son of a bitch. Oh no, you can't keep digging in the septic tank. Oh, but I like my septic tank. I have friends in there. (laughs) Um... I will be expanding the show feed to one of the new Twitter clones that's coming out. I just got to wait to see which one's going to stick. It will probably not be threads. All of my friends on threads. I am not linking this shit to fucking Facebook because I don't want my family to hear my voice. Mark Zuckerberg does not need any more of my data. He can get fucked. He's got plenty of it. Like If you follow me on Instagram, you know I don't fucking post there. I'll like your shit if I like you and that's all I do. If you follow me on Facebook, fucking why? I haven't touched that thing since 2016. Um, Social media rant over. Keep your eyes peeled. Um, I'll announce whatever on Twitter or on the pod if things change. But until next time, uh, see ya. No, don't sing the song because I'm going to play the shitty version of the song. At this point, I want to rant for ten more minutes about something to hit the two-hour mark. (laughs) I can't believe you went this long.